Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. We are live at the Real Capital Conference as part of our forum series. For those of you wondering what that is, we are going to be attending a number of the real estate forums across the country this year and doing podcasts live from the forum events. So if you see us, come say hi. It's exciting for us only because, you know, it's an opportunity to get better guests. And so with us today is Kevin Leon, the founder and president of Crestpoint. Welcome aboard, Kevin. Thank you, gentlemen. I'd like to, first of all, apologize to all of our previous guests that Aaron just assaulted. That's <laughs> <laughs> not what I meant. So it makes it easier. I mean, maybe back up before we get to Kevin. Sorry, Kevin. You know, By the way, I thought that was a great interview. <laughs> <laughs> for Adam and I, we've been doing this for a number of years. And one of the hardest things, and for those that are listening for years, is finding guests. And if we go back to the, the beginning, you know, we were basically begging and pleading just friends that happened to work in the real estate industry to say, come and sit with us and talk to us for an hour. And, you know, slowly but surely, you create a little bit more credibility but even then, you know, we would go to a forum, we would see somebody on a panel that we thought was a good speaker and you approach them and say, Hey, you want to come on my podcast? And they'd look at you like, why would I do that? So or finding podcast. Yeah. And, and then of course we got, we got really fortunate to have some more preeminent names on like Jonathan Gitlin, Amy Erickson, and you know, many others. I'm not going to list everybody, but now of course, partnering with Informa, I just, you know, kind of expanded our scope and allowed us to, to get more exposure. So for the listeners, for you that have been listening for a long time, or even if you're a first time listener, it just means you know, just more content, right? So we're going to be doing two of these per conference, most of the conferences across the country. And Adam and I are still going to be recording others as time permits. So probably more than you're used to in the past. It used to be every two to three weeks, but we're likely going to have more content for our uh, commercial real estate listeners. Which is the real benefit for people who don't actually attend any of the forums. They can uh, you know get a lot more exposure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway, let's yeah. enough about that. Who cares yeah. about us? Okay. Who cares about us? Kevin's sitting here saying, I don't care, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really? He's is this clean. over yet? No, no. It's just <laughs> starting. Okay. over his face. Okay. Okay, so Kevin, Crestpoint, why don't you start though with, you know, where did you get into commercial real estate? How did you, how did you end up where you are today? So I was just looking over live here at the forum to a gentleman I, who works in the industry, Andrew Odd, who I play hockey with twice a week. And really real estate was secondary to my hockey career when I was younger. But like most Canadians, that was a dream. And so when the sports the thought of making a career out of sports uh, started to fade. I kind of wondered what else I could do growing up and have to look back and say, one of the things that fascinated me, other than my Lego toys, building blocks, was tall buildings. So Even at a young age. Even at a young like, age. What age do you think that was? Like, if you can just guess. I mean, it doesn't matter, but like it's a seven or eight or nine. Like, yeah, that it was probably, age. you know, high single digits, early teens, you know, okay. 10, 11, 12, 13 kind of thing. And just fascinated by development and cranes and is your, cities. Is your family in the industry? Because often kids are only because their father does it. So that's why they're interested. No, my family's in the furniture business. I come from, my dad came from a family of 11 kids and had to quit school when he was in grade eight. So really taught us work ethic and was, you know, busy at work for almost my entire childhood. So that, you know, that was teaching me a little bit about the business world, but he's the only man who, and, you know, God bless his soul because he passed away 10 years ago, but in 2007 or eight, he said, you know, I'm the only guy who bought real estate in the last 40 years and hasn't gone up in value. So I certainly didn't get my real estate expertise from him, but very good businessman. And so uh, I don't know where real estate came. It just it was just something that wasn't in my family, but uh, something that I just had a natural inclination to. And so 
after, as I said, I realized I wasn't going to make it in sports. I, uh, I was fortunate enough to go to uh, Ivy at Western and you start to get a little exposure to what real estate is. And of course, you guys have probably heard this before, but most people, when you talk about real estate, think you're selling houses. Mm. And so you think you're a little prestigious going to a biz school and, and then you, you, know, you have to kind of get your mindset okay, what do I want to do? Now, I graduated in 89, and if you guys are too young to remember this, but real estate was hot back in the late 80s. You had a few good years then because it went very cold shortly well, after. Well, so yeah. <laughs> I'm sitting here in biz school, and uh, you know the professors are coming, bringing in brokers from, at the time, I think it was, I don't know if it was Royal LePage or Coldwell Banker. Well, part of that is rates had come down from the low 20s, right? So anything looked like it was cheap at that point. So like they come to our biz class in Western and they talk about how much money they're making and what a great business this is. And it's like 1987 and, you know, buildings are going up everywhere and you're like, this is great. So my summer between my third and fourth year, I went to CB and got a job as a summer student. And I actually don't remember how I got the job, but I guess I just applied and got the job. And I had a real fun experience for the summer. And so they invited me back full time when I graduated in 89. And I struggled a little bit. I didn't accept it right away because again, exploring my different avenues, I I actually had an offer from IntraWest to go out and work in Vancouver. And at that time, IntraWest was a big name and, you know, doing lots of exciting things. And had an offer to go down to New York to work in investment banking and another one in Toronto. So in the end, I kind of said, you know what? I think I want to stay in Toronto, but, and I really like, seem to like real estate going back to my fascination as a child. So I ended up taking a job with CB. Well, it was Coldwell Banker back then. Hmm. No Richard Ellis at that point. No <laughs> Richard Ellis, just a Coldwell Banker, kind of ugly blue signs. And you know, started in perfect time, September of 89, almost exactly <laughs> at the top of the marketplace. Easiest money you ever made. Oh, so, God. Yeah. I was, yeah. Easiest I was money like, you ever lost. Those, yeah. those guys who came into my biz school, they weren't that smart. I can do what they do. Well, it, actually, I just mentioned not being smart. You and I might have a connection then because my dad was a broker who was invited to speak at Ivy and talk about how amazing his business was. And that would have been at some point in the 80s oh. when things were on fire. <laughs> so imagine. I'll, I'll pass along that you inspired him with his lack of intelligence to get into the market. That wasn't your dad. It was the other guy. His father, by yeah. the way. Yeah. And then interesting related to that, Aaron and I actually got invited to go speak at Ivy as well because of this podcast. So, you know, a couple of decades later, it came oh. full circle. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. <laughs> So there's some kids sitting there going, look at these idiots. I could do better yeah, than that. Yeah. Yeah. Look at it. Well, up. or that, or they're going to skip the class when you guys show up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so yeah, so I started September 89. I mean, I took a couple months off. I got to travel to Europe and did that, you know, that travel thing after school. And sitting there, I'm thinking this is going to be great. And of course, 1990 happened. And I'm sitting there and I'm a sales trainee. It's now 1991. Still haven't made my first sale. And thought I'll do it a lot. I'm like, wow, I, I know a ton, but nobody wanted to listen to me. So 92 happens, same thing. Finally, in 93, I would say probably a bit of a breakthrough was, you know, I got to know the business better, but, and you, you know, you call on enough people, some people have sympathy for you and actually take your call and they want to listen to what you say. And at that point, some people had to sell, but we also got into what I call the famous loan to own program in the 90s. And if you were a, the, owner or the borrower, that's not such a great program. But if you were a broker starting out and a bank had no more of a clue what to do with the real estate than 
you did, other than, you know, you, you would display some knowledge and, you know, tell them what's happening a little bit in the marketplace and what's going on in the leasing marketplace. That was kind of our breakthrough. And I worked a lot with another, a very credible and high-ranking person in this business, Peter Sense. Him and I worked quite a bit mm-hmm. together. And he and I really started focusing on the banks. And that was really the start of our career taking off. And that was predominantly still in the single family market? No. Or what, what asset class? No, so that was commercial. That, that was, was that was all commercial. So we didn't know single family. Right, that okay. was... Right, sorry. Yeah. So that was just, you know, they lent on an office building. And back then, and the, see, the 80s was different. And I, you know, we talk about this at our at Crest Point a little bit about positive leverage and negative leverage, but it's so hard for the younger people in our generation, and you guys would fit that goal to an extent, that there was time in the 80s where you would buy at a 4% yield and borrow at a 6% coupon. Well, Negative leverage was standard then, I understand. That was negative leverage. (laughs) It doesn't really work unless rents go up really quickly. Yeah. So when the rent stopped going up, a lot of the banks took over the properties. And so they didn't want to own them. So the key to that factor is, it wasn't like a private guy saying, you know what, I'm just going to sit on it. I'm going to own the property. I'm going to wait till the market comes back. Most of the banks didn't want to do that. Right. So now you had a seller, right? So yeah. even if- A motivated seller. A motivated seller. So even if they lent them, you know, properties worth $100, they lent at $70 and they had to sell at $40, they were sellers. So- but That's just because they wanted it off their books. Didn't matter. It just looks bad on their books. So get it off, book the loss and move on. Absolutely. That was generally the attitude. And some decided on that quicker than others, but generally that was the attitude. So that really fueled our business from 93 to 1997. It's, it's what were you doing with these assets, Kevin? You're buying them, oh, no. so we owning were, them I, yourselves? Or how no, were you no, I, I was the, an agent. So, so I sales. was a broker, just a broker of the sale. Yeah, okay. And you started slowly, but eventually buyers came out of the woodwork in 93, 94, 95, 96. By the time 1997 rolled around, we had a phenomenal year. I became the top broker in Canada, top sales broker in Canada. And it was just like, life was great. All of a sudden, that choice I made back in 1989 didn't look so bad. <laughs> Those brokers just, weren't yeah, like you. Yeah. Adam's dad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was a real role from 93 to 99. And I had a phenomenal team working with Peter and other people at CBRE. And actually, if you look at the top salespeople at CBRE today, there's still a lot of the people that I worked with. And back then. It's back then. And just great family, really smart, hardworking. And I stress the hardworking. If you look at the people in that business who do really well, it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of doors getting shut on your face and kind of getting, picking yourself back up and, and, and then you get to a point where Peter Sense and his team and other, not just CB, but other very professional brokers and investment bankers who have established themselves really have a great business going. So 99, I was still yearning a little bit about what if I went into investment banking? And so, well, why was that? What was, what was itching you? So I would say, you know, I reached the top at CBRE. I was number 197, number 198, was heading that way in 99. So it can't be money then because that's got to pay pretty well to be top yeah, of the heap. Yeah. So good point. It was, it was, am I learning, you know, am I still really learning a lot? And the answer was yes and no. And the no part was you learn every day dealing with people, but the no part was you're kind of formulaic. Are you being challenged? Yeah. You're, you're, to be really good in that business, somewhat of it is formulaic. Like, you know, you have to, 
you have to spend time with the people you think you're going to sell. You have to know the market. You have to spend time with the buyers and, you know, and, and you have to be rational in your decision-making what listings to take on and, and who to try and sell them to. But you're, it's the scope is a little bit more limited. So, and I've heard all this, you know, living in Toronto, you know, real estate is a part of the financial culture in, in Toronto, but it's not just the main part. You go to Vancouver, actually, real estate's one of the main businesses mm-hmm. because it's a smaller city, doesn't have the financial no, district. Five big five, bank head yeah, offices. Yeah, it's yeah. that Toronto does, whereas Toronto, you know, investment bankers were the thing or just the whole fi- you know, financial industry. So I had some curiosity and the investment banks were also getting a little more into brokerage. So I had a specialty that they liked, knew I excelled at. So CIBC came calling in 99. And after probably three to four months consideration, in late 99, I decided to leave and go to investment banking. And you guys hit the nail on the head. And it was, it was a chance for me to really learn a lot. The money was not any better. In some respects, the money was for the first few years, a little more limiting. Now your downside was protected a little bit more, but your upside was probably limited a little bit at the beginning. But it was an opportunity just to expand your horizons. I mean, we had, at our group, we had about $3 billion of CIBC-owned assets that our group took care of. So you got to view it from the ownership side. We had a corporate real estate loan book that we weren't the active guys originating, but we had to sponsor the capital. So we had to approve the loans and and say, yeah, we'll vouch for these borrowers and we'll vouch that this, the metrics make sense. We had an M&A group at the investment bank, which we got exposure to because, you know, first year of my business, Oxford got taken over by Omers. You know, we worked on that file. It's a really interesting stuff all of a sudden you're being exposed so, to that you never would have seen never would have staying seen. at CB. Yeah. And maybe kind of interestingly, we were... At CIBC, first investors in Kingset and a few other Bentall Opportunity Funds. So some fun, the fun business, which obviously will come full circle on that in a, in a little bit. And so, you know, we got to invest a little bit of money and then we got a seat at the table. So we weren't the active guys running the fund, but, you know, we got to go to quarterly meetings and see how they run it and see how our investment performed. So it was just, it was just as you can see, the gamut in the business, the 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 breadth and depth of that business was a little bit more than being at CBRE. So before we go too far ahead, somewhere back here in the back of your head, did you, were you thinking about, you know, that you're acquiring all these different skill sets and that you might be able to take them and put them together? Or was that just like a, you had no concept at some point? Or were you always kind of thinking that you might do it yourself? So one of the things that I started to do at CBRE, probably 97, 98, is a few of our clients were, for lack of a better term, I'm going to call them syndicators. So a syndicator is typically referred to as a private person who goes and you know syndicates to whether it's his buddies or people he knows. Or, the, the no skin in the game uh, strategy. Yeah, well, they, they have a little skin in the game, but they try and get somebody else's skin in the game. So a couple of deals were brought to us, and so I would take a small piece of the deal. Now, one of the things you have to make sure, and I, and I would commend the brokerage industry even to this day, I know very few situations where brokers get in conflicts with their clients, meaning somebody asks you to take a piece. It's not something you're selling because yeah, of course. you don't want to be in conflict. But so these happened to be a couple of things that we had no, we weren't doing the assignment for. It just happened to a couple of people we knew and we took a piece of the deal. And so it got me some exposure to the principal side of the business. And so to answer your question, yes. And at CB, I was like, I like this. 
But what drives you, and I'd be interested if you took all the top brokers and asked them this question, what drives you once you become one of the top salespeople at a brokerage company, it's pretty hard not to want to stay there. So one of the things that I struggle with a little bit is I didn't want to take my eye off my real job, which was doing what's best for my clients, getting the maximum pricing and making a lot of money as a salesperson. So I didn't think I could do focus on that principal side of the business enough to make it really worth my while. And uh, when I went to the bank, I said, I'm going to learn part of this stuff I'm going to learn is because I want to eventually get to the okay. principal side of the business. So there was some intention. Yeah. I know everything seems by hap chance, yeah. but yes, there was some a little attention. bit of intention. I mean, not, it wasn't perfectly designed, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, fair enough. But you can apply some revisionist history to it, make <laughs> yeah. the story arc much uh, cleaner. Yeah. Say, I knew yeah. from uh, A7. Yeah, when I was seven, yeah. And I told I you, I, go, I was that you? Lego. I was really good at building Lego. <laughs> yeah. And I sold pieces to my brother and my sister. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> On that note, have you guys played the game Catan? Yes. yes. Settlers yeah. of Catan. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you win every time on yeah, that I, game? I haven't lost yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure your sons love playing with you. Yeah. Well, no, he's, uh, he's a little upset about that. Um, <laughs> one of them is anyways. So, yeah. So, the, so investment banking, yes. I went in there with the idea. Quite frankly, I went in with the idea. I'm going to be there for five years. Okay. And I ended up staying 10. And what happened was... 2008. And so what around 2007, even before the market turned, I started saying, you know what, I'm, I think I'm getting ready to make a move. And because I had so much more exposure to even other clients, like Greystone was one of my biggest clients. And you guys are familiar probably with Greystone. They just got bought by TD. A friend of mine, Ted Walter was running their equity, uh, their real estate equity and mortgage business. Got familiar with them. Obviously got familiar with Bentall a little bit more with GWL, just, and then understanding what they do that was a little bit different than maybe what TrioVest was doing, where at the time it was called Redcliffe and Osmington mm -hmm. and Morgard. So I just got exposure to all these different lines of businesses. And so, saw how they were operating and how they were approaching the market and you got to see what you liked and didn't like, right? And so the other part of my business, which I didn't talk about is, which was really exciting, is I got to raise equity for some of the largest REITs. H&R REIT was my client at the bank. Mm -hmm. Tom Hofstetter is still a good friend of mine. We're partners today on a, a bunch of stuff at Crest Point. Summit, you know, you got to go and give board presentations to talk about the market and artistry, just all these people and understand how the REITs work. And, you know, the structure has changed a little bit since I was in investment banking. It had some good aspects to it and some not so good aspects to it. So effect is trying to say, okay, take all the good from, you know, all the people I learned and try and do away with the bad. And what can I do in the business? So 08 happened. I had a formative transaction I did with H&R and Fairfax on a on a, the, probably the depths of the market in 2000. And, you know, it was late 08 or early 09. So and, this is after Bear Stearns. Yeah, the whole oh, thing yeah. so, you know, H&R had to raise some money and, and we had to do a convertible debenture. And so that was, that was a really interesting structure. But what that was interesting about it was could not get one pension fund. Two or three went to their board. They all recognized what a fantastic opportunity that was. But because of what's happening in the financial crisis, nobody could get it past their board. Hmm. So I said, okay, 09 hit. I'm going to, so I started thinking about how I was going to make a move to the principal side. I had some discussions. And then I guess I, I realized, again, after 09 kind of went through the year, I need some homework. I need some time to really focus on this. 
So I made the decision without having, knowing exactly what I was going to do. Mm. Unlike where I jumped from CBRE to CIBC, I had the job, was seamless, boom. This time I made a decision to say, I'm going to leave the bank without having that next plan absolutely in place. Jumping into some pretty choppy waters, given the timing too. That's uh, it's bold. Yeah, and, and, the, and the theory behind that was, okay, prices are down. Let's take advantage of it. Now, I guess you probably saw the guys you sold properties to, 93, 94, and 85, who I'm sure did very well over time. And did you see a second coming of those same opportunities? You know, I knew it wasn't going to be as good as 93, 94, 95, but I did, I was hopeful that there was going to be a situation where we could take advantage of dislocation in the marketplace and lower price per square foot and, you know, people being negative on real estate. Now, the difference between 09 and 90 is 90 was a real estate-led recession, both from a real estate and a debt perspective. Mm-hmm. 09, which was interesting, was obviously a global financial crisis, but Canada, the real estate fundamentals were still very good. So what happened is, yes, you had to slow down because of the global capital flows and people were nervous about the general marketplace, but the fundamentals in Canada were still pretty good. So in retrospect, I wish it would have got that bad because I left in 010 and, I, and I'm like licking my chops saying this is, I'm going to set up a shop. I got a couple pension plans who said they would back me. I'm going to start an investment firm. It's easy as so one, two, the three. the worse the market, the better for you in yeah. that kind of scenario. Easy as one, two, three. So yeah, you take a month off. I go to a buddy's place, set up shop in a law firm, start noodling out what I want to do. And I'm obviously I've got great contacts. So I'm talking to people and getting all sorts of ideas. And you sit there and you go, well, this ain't going to be so easy. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I might have the real estate acumen and background, but you got to set up a business. Like who, I can't even, I hate it. Who's going to be my it guy, right? I don't have a CIBC <laughs> it guy anymore. So like you're thinking about all these things. So one of one individual, my assistant actually at CIBC, liked working with me so much, either that or she didn't really like working at the bank. I don't know which one it was. <laughs> Decided to leave and, and come set up shop with me. And then I had a gentleman that I didn't know really well, but he had just got out of work and wanted some contract work and he was a knowledgeable person. So he also came on board. So there's the three of us setting up shop in a law office, a friend of mine. And I was scoping out how I wanted to set up the company. And one of my thoughts was, you know, I think there's room for a money manager to be in this business. I think that based on what I've seen, there's not enough exposure and not enough good managers to people who can bring them long-term growth through income generation over time in some form of limited partnership. In an ideal scenario, it would be an open-ended partnership, which really means that there's at least some liquidity. And people are relying on you, make those decisions to run those properties. So it's a little bit different than what was prevalent in the business. The only person, there was two groups that were, well, maybe three that were really doing this at the time. So Greystone was the leader. Bental was not far behind them. Gray West Life was there. Although Gray West Life had a lot with their own balance sheet money. Of course. And Standard Life was doing it a little bit. And I apologize to everybody who's listening who I missed, but... There are others for but sure. What, those uh, are the four you remember. Yeah. yeah. So... One of my mentors, being Ted Welter, the guy running Greystone, said, I shouldn't be telling you this, but I think you could set up shop and do a good job, you know, and and bring more competition to the marketplace. And so what really brought that on is I got a call about a month, about two months after I 
left CIBC. So this is probably March, maybe early April from a gentleman named Mike Freud. And he calls me up and says, I heard you left CIBC. I said, yeah. He said, I heard you want to start up your own investment firm. So that's fairly accurate. He says, I want you to come and see me. He says, here's who we are, Connor Clark and Lund, money manager, who I knew they were, who they were, although I didn't do any real work with them when I was at the investment bank. And he says, we've got eight different entities within our organization, including infrastructure, which has gone really well. We do a little bit of private equity. We do, you know, we have global equity, Canadian equity. We have an office, you know, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, small offices throughout the rest of Canada. At that time, we didn't have any offices in the U.S. and, and a small office in London. And we want, we want to start real estate. Maybe we should do it together. So show you how small a world is. This is the same gentleman that back in 1997, when I was at CBRE, I sold him this Toronto Stock Exchange Tower. So he was running a company called Gentra. And if you guys don't probably don't remember that name, but it was the old Royal Trusco. Back to my story in the 90s when everyone went bankrupt, Royal Trusco took all the real estate assets, put it in a company called Gentra. This gentleman worked in the, in the whole, he's Ed Per Bromf and what turned out to be Brookfield. Right. And he was not real, necessarily a real estate guy, but at that moment in time, he was running that company. And he was the guy I dealt with to, get, to sell him this Toronto Stock Exchange Tower back in 1997 for $140 million, which you can add a zero until the end of that today. So we, know, we knew each other. We didn't know each other well, but we knew each other. And so... Did you ever find out how he heard that? Yeah, he... One of my partners in investment banking was a guy named Alan Kimberly. He went and saw Alan Kimberly and probably a month after I left, two months. And he goes, where's Kevin? He goes, oh, he just left. So that's, that's how... Hmm. Wow. That's the world right. works in weird ways sometimes. Yeah, really. uh, yeah. I thought the story was going to, uh, and then I identified these nine different money managers. I started approaching them and, you know, just kind of almost coincidence, eh? Yeah. Well, sometimes it pays to be lucky. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, for sure. <laughs> I think more often than not, I mean, yeah. for those that have listened to the podcast, that that is often a theme. So what do you use it? Luck or skill? Well, it's usually 50-50 in a lot of cases. You right? may have so, heard my dad say in the 80s at, uh, at Ivy, it was just better to be lucky than smart in real estate. He says it all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there you go. Yeah, no question yeah. about it. You know what? On a serious note, you got to put your, give yourself the opportunity. If you put yourself out there and give yourself that opportunity, right. luck will come to you more often, right? So yeah, so then we, you know, it, it wasn't seamless. Like we didn't like shake hands the next day and start the company. Took three or four months. And just for everybody's edification, Connor Clark and Lund is a money manager now, has about $71 billion under management. They had about $39 billion when I joined them. And effectively, they manage money on behalf of high net worth investors, private investors for about eight or $9 billion and the rest is institutional money. But the institutional money, some of it is names we all heard of, CPP, PSP. Most of it though is pension plans or union funds or endowment funds that, you know, us in real estate, and I'll generalize because some people may have heard of them, would never have heard of. So they don't have their own real estate teams. They don't have, they have one person running the whole fund or they have one person running the alternatives. And alternatives being infrastructure, mm-hmm. timber, agriculture, you know, different, different, what we call the private market businesses. So what they typically do is they look for somebody who can provide a service and, you know, reporting and all the things that, and who's got a track record. And Connor Clark and Lana had been around since the late 80s or mid 80s, I guess. And so for me, it was a great fit because they didn't have a real estate affiliation, it was like me joining another investment bank because I got exposure, again, in a different way, but 
They had an, if I wanted to go talk to somebody about equities, I could go talk to one of the guys who runs one of the equity shops. If I wanted to talk to somebody about fixed income, if I wanted to talk to somebody about infrastructure, they provided you the, you know, you got access to all the IT guys, all the marketing guys. You don't have to do any of that guys. stuff yourself. Yeah, I was yeah. so excited. I never had to set up my computers. Uh, um, all the skill sets you don't want. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you laugh, but th- that's what their, their, their slogan is. You do what you do best, which is invest in real estate and run it. And we'll take care of the rest. And it's a 50-50 partnership. And it's a private company. It's very well run. It's grown a lot. Like I said, it went from 39 to 71 billion in eight years that I've been there. And it's privately held at the Connor Clark and Lund Financial Group level, meaning, you know, there's now 92 shareholders, which, are, you know, I'm one of them. And when I joined, there was probably about 27 or 28 shareholders in Connor Clark and Lund Financial Group. So they've done really well. Now with Greystone being taken out, I believe they're the largest independent money manager in Canada. And so it's been a great partnership. I think they're super excited because two things, when we started negotiating, I said, well, we'll handle the money, they said, and you know, you, you have the expertise. I said, yeah, that's probably right, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to be able to bring some money into this business. And I'm not, not talking about my personal money. I, I did invest personally and I'm a big investor in the fund, but I'm talking about outside third-party capital. They go, oh yeah, we've heard that before. So that was their line, their response. Yeah, we've heard that before. Well, you know, within eight months, I had brought one of my institutional investors in to put in $30 million of equity. So, Raising your own capital as well. Yeah. So, you know, they, they oh, you know what? You were right. But, you know, the first three months I started that business in August, of two, August September 2010. And then the first three months I did a roadshow for much of it to all the private investors right across the country. So it was like doing a roadshow for an IPO for a REIT. So again, something I was familiar with. Mm. And it wasn't just us. It wasn't just real estate. It was real estate and infrastructure. We raised about $40 million. And we put in another $5 million, $10 million between Connor Clark and Lennon and myself and a few other private investors. And today, you know, that was, that was our first $40 million. And today we're now up to $4.5 billion of real estate and, you know, over $2.5 billion of equity. Wow. And so uh, it was just the start of something great. And, you know, the businesses, they say it was the quickest business and other than the founding business, it was the quickest startup business that's made money in, in the history of Connor Clark and Lund Financial Group. Neat. And what was your first uh, transaction? So our first transaction was an industrial building in Calgary. And we bought it in, we closed in March of 2011. We bought it in December. And we bought, it was about a $12 million deal. And we brought in a partner, or actually, I would say that I think they brought us in. It was somebody I did business with, again, at, in, at CIBC. And they took 20%, we took 80%. And uh, it was, uh, we, you know, the building had some vacancy and we leased it up right away. And, you know, it turned out to be a fabulous deal. And But, you know, at the time, a $12 million deal, that was a big deal for mm. us. It was our first deal. Do you, you, know, do you still own it or do you flip it? No, we still have it. We still have it. Yeah, we still have it. Is it one of those ones you just can't sell it because it was the first one? It kind of has... I, sort of, you do have, I mean, you, you, I know, you never get emotionally attached to any of these things, but do you kind of look at that one a little I bit I don't know. I do get emotionally attached to one of our assets, the LCBO at Summerhill and Young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Best wine selection yeah, in the city. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of emotionally attached emotionally to that attached one. To that. <laughs> so 2011, the credit markets were back in full swing by then. So I assume the debt was not a problem. Were you concerned at all when you launched your venture that carrying debt would be an issue? So our target was at the, well, 
you know, initially we went up a little higher because we wanted to diversify our portfolio a little quicker, right? Because obviously we needed to spread our equity over more yeah, assets. Higher on the leverage, you mean? Yeah. So we were almost, I think our first loan was about 60% on that one asset. We're still on the conservative side. Yeah. Now I can tell you, unless we've assumed a loan in the eight years we've been in business, we, I don't think I've ever put a loan on more than 60%. We've assumed some loans that have been higher than that. But our fund is about 48% levered. And when we go on put new debt, it's typically around 55%. And there's a there's some rationale. There's actually Yeah, I was gonna say we have yeah, like we do have it? we do have some rationale behind the company. It's not just all luck. <laughs> <laughs> the rationale, and this is a topic I'm a little passionate about. The rationale where we land on debt is what is the lowest spread we can get without putting recourse financing on. And we typically try and match our term of the mortgage similar to the term of the leases. Longer is better a lot of times, not always, depending on the profile of the asset. And if you're doing a lot of work or capital work or value add, then sometimes shorter term debt is better. But on a more stabilized asset, we'll typically, if the average lease term is seven, we'll probably go seven. You know, some the odd time you'll get to go 10, the odd time you go five, but typically you're going to go around that seven. But the amount of debt really is based on where we can get, you know, that spread without having to provide recourse. And Why is that? What is the affinity against providing a recourse? And this is an interesting topic. You know, of course, Adam and I being lenders and here at Real Capital. So let's get into this a little bit. Because we have some clients of First National that have no problem. They just, yeah, I'll put my personals down for anything. It doesn't matter to me because I believe in the real estate. I believe in what I can do in my execution. And so there is no risk me putting more, you know, recourse. And other lenders like yourself, or other, sorry, other investors like yourself that have the op- almost exact opposite view. So what is it that, that has created that perspective for you? So a couple things. I would say, my investment committee, which is Colin McKellar, my partner, who's a great partner, and Mike Freund, the gentleman I mentioned before, and Warren Stoddard, who are the co-CEOs of Connor Clark and Lund, both came from, you know, both are a little older than I am, so they've seen the, the rough times. Both have kind of been in the real estate industry, but more in the financial industry, and are very credit adverse, very risk adverse, right? And so they, along with, I would say, most of our investors, Want, of course, they're like everybody else. They want the big returns and they want as low risk as possible. So if you look at it from a macro perspective, even if you do everything right and you've got recourse, there is a chance that you could be the best operator in the world and it could come back to haunt you. So what we try and do is isolate risk. And if you give a non-recourse loan, you are by nature of definition isolating that risk to that one asset. So knock on wood, you know, we haven't had any real hiccups in our business. I'm not saying every one of our assets has turned out perfect, but, you know, and I'll give you an example. We have two, we don't have any office in Calgary, which was by chance, but mostly by design because I had a lot of experience in Calgary. Not to say I don't like Calgary market. At some point we hope to get into it, but now we can hopefully buy it at a third of what we could have bought it at. Yeah. Five years ago. Yeah. yeah. But we had two office buildings in Edmonton. Did okay on them. And quite frankly, both of them are still very well leased over 90%. But when we had to go refinance them two years ago, we just, we didn't even bother borrowing on them because, you know, lenders were going to give us 40% at 300 over. Mm-hmm. So at that time, it just made more sense not to, not to borrow. But if I had put 60% debt on there and recourse, all of a sudden, you know, if the situation got worse, you know, I, I got to de- dip into my pocket to pay off that loan. 
we didn't have that issue. So I am, you know, I, as much as we can, we isolate risk. And that's, that's why we go non so do you, know, you must have the conversation internally and run the models because that extra, let's say 60% is non, 60% loan to value would be the non-recourse threshold. 70% being with limited recourse potentially. Do you ever, do you ever run those models? Because we were talking about positive leverage and negative leverage, but that extra 10% in your, in your proceeds, your loan proceeds, does that not skew you to say, well, I'm going to get a much better yield for putting up some limited as recourse to the fund, not necessarily personal, right? Yeah, no, and when we're talking about recourse to the fund, not, yeah, yeah, not, I think a lot of it also depends on who your investors are. Our investors, as I mentioned, are smaller, well, our institutions, smaller institution endowments funds, high net worth individuals. The attitude we always take is, even though they're probably very successful people, they probably don't have a lot of expertise in real estate. So if you're going to err, you err on the conservative side. And so we feel like that extra 10% of debt is not, most of the time, is not worth taking the risk. Now, we've got a couple of very special situations where we've run into a situation where maybe the leases are all expiring in the next 12, 18, 24 months. We feel like we got a really good buy. And I can think of one right now in Toronto, an industrial building that the major lease was coming up in 18 months. We felt like we got a good buy. And the best debt we got had a small, limited amount of recourse. So in that situation, we couldn't, the differential was so large from no recourse mm. to a very small limited recourse. So we actually did put limited recourse on that. And in theory, if you're buying well, you're repositioning the leases in a couple of years, you're refinancing into a longer term non-recourse loan. Yeah. So that one, we are out in the market as we speak and we've already got quotes well above our existing debt for a five, seven, or 10-year term because we renewed the major tenant. On a right. non-recourse right. basis. On a non-recourse basis. So the plan was executed flawlessly. Yeah. So I want to bring up a topic on the financing because I, I think it's it's interesting because you guys brought it up. So some of our competitors in the open-end fund stra- business, and just again, to reiterate, open-end fund means that our investors have the ability on a quarterly basis to redeem their units. So we're not on a stock exchange, but we do unit pricing every month, every quarter, our investors get a report, they get a net asset value per unit. And if for whatever reason they want to redeem their units, they give us notice and 60 days later they can. And you, and you almost have to do that because of just the liquidity and allow these investors to bring in the money, but know that they can get it out whenever they Correct. want. Right. So some of our competitors in that open um space are you know, leveraged at 20 to 25%. And ours is about 47, 48%. And, you know, we do hear this a lot. You take, you know, relative to your competitors, are you taking a lot of risk? So what we're really trying to do is find that, you know, end up at that fine point where we believe we can tell our investors we're taking very little risk, not no risk, because that's not correct, but very little risk. We're getting you the best cost of capital possible because we're getting that spread that's as good as anybody in the marketplace. And, you know, I don't want to stay, but I, I would be hard pressed to know on a couple of deals we did last year that anybody got a lower spread than we did. And, can we, can we quote numbers? <laughs> no, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and so we're taking, trying to optimize that cost of capital, but our competitors will say, oh, but you're taking too much risk because you're going from 25 to 47. I say, you know what? Finance lenders bring in more discipline to your program because they do due diligence. When you're doing due diligence as a lender, you guys tell me, all you look at is downside. Absolutely. 
That's all you do. So much easier to say, no, I'm not doing that deal, right? Because our, our upside is fixed. So we don't see that, you know, much of the upside, but downside, we can see a chasm of downside if we, uh, you know, get in the wrong uh, asset. So, you know, a lender brings and stills another set of discipline to you. And so that we like. And you know what? The reality is when you get a, a loan, you got to get an appraised too. It's another, another data point to say, okay, am I paying the right price for this asset? So, but most importantly, it's a, we think it's a benefit. It's obviously, we talked about it's positive leverage and you're amortizing the debt over the term of the loan. So guess what? Even if values don't go up, you're paying down that debt every day, right? Do you ever try to find interest-only loans? Do you ever go that route? Because some of your competitors do, right? That, that's the strategy of this. Yes, we do. Sometimes we do. We're, again, in the process of doing a new acquisition now. And, um, and why is that? Why do you, why do you, for our listeners, what, do you, what, do you, what is the approach or what is the gain for having no amortization on your loans? In markets where we're buying assets with well under market rents, so we're buying at a lower yield. You mean a lower cap rate? Sorry, sorry, a lower, yeah, yeah, lower, lower cap, cap, cap rate, rate lower yeah. yield. Yeah. yeah. So if we're buying at a four percent yield, which you know in today's market, if you're buying really solid assets in Vancouver or Toronto, typically that's where you're buying. That's market. Yeah. Then interest absolutely, interest only absolutely helps you from a cash flow perspective. And of course, the theory behind it is if you're buying and the average rent in the building is twenty and the market rent's thirty. By the time that mortgage starts amortizing, you're going to have a big lift in income, which will help you pay for that, you know, that am. So I guess our strategy would be on, on certain assets where we're buying on a, on a lower cap rate. Yes, we will. And we believe, importantly, we believe there's real upside in the rents, not projected, but actual rents in the building today are below market. Then we think interest only makes sense. So let's let's go two different directions. So just so we're on the same page, let's go to Crest Point and the company and the culture that you've got there and, and what you kind of created now in, in the 10 year span or it's been about that time. And then let's go to the strategy of what you're looking for in the marketplace today because things are so competitive and there's so much activity going on. So first the business and what it looks like today and why you're proud to be, you know, to, to have founded and created this entity. So Crest Point is, um, best way to describe it is, I think we're entrepreneurial in spirit, but an institutional mindset. And so what I mean by that, in an institutional background. So what do investors want today? They want people to be able to find opportunities, identify opportunities in the marketplace, execute on those opportunities, be nimble to see changes in the marketplace. Now, yes, we're not in the stock market every day, so it doesn't, it's not as volatile as the stock market, but there are dislocations in our marketplace and we can take advantage of those and then look at, you know, each asset on a long-term basis to create income growth. And why I think that's really important is because a lot of times in this business, you have people that look at it and say, what's my yield day one? That's the most important thing. You know what? I won't be in the company anymore. You know, I'm going to be retired. I'm a REIT and I'm not displacing all REITs, but some REITs do this. You know, is it accretive day one? We'll worry about if it's accretive five years from now. Or you have other people that, you know, are just looking at opportunistic buys, which is, can I lease it up the vacancy right away? And can I sell it next year? What makes Crestpoint really unique, and I think this dovetails into how the, the culture we've created, is we can look at a full spectrum of assets. 
knowing full well, the most, the biggest key to success for us is 10 years from today, and I'm taking 10, it could be 15, it could be seven. But long-term, we believe that asset will be worth more. And that could take a function of different things. That could be just under market rents. That could be a lease expiring in three or four years. We spend some capital, refurbish it and change the, the face of the asset. Could be expansion potential. Could be infill industrial where the tenant wants to do a five-year sale lease back and people look at you and say, why did you buy that? Because, you know, four years from now, we're going to tear down the building. And unlike most developers who look at and say, if I can't get out that building next year or the year after, I'm not buying it. So we're trying to create that. And I think we have done a real successful job of creating that, that mindset that we can look at assets in different ways. We have, we have some flexibility on a time frame As long as you know our overarching goal, which is to create income generation long-term. Because if you do that, you'll create the capital appreciation. The other thing I set out to do in the company is be user-friendly. What does that mean? Really means that, you know, coming from an advisory role, a lot of contacts in the business. Just because I walked and started Crestpoint, I wasn't going to go over to Bentall and, and say, Paul Zemla, I don't like you anymore. Or, you know, Tom Pinkham at GWL, you're my competitor now. And these are guys I do business with. Ted Welter, like, you know, just go on and on. So I might compete with somebody one day and be their partner on another time. So we have a lot of partnerships and our partnerships take a lot of different forms. And I think that's because people appreciate what we bring to the table, which is they appreciate our real estate acumen. They appreciate we can move pretty quickly, but they know we have a strong financial backing you know, Connor Clark and Lana's got a strong balance sheet. We have a strong balance sheet now. We've got a great reputation. And that's really important. And what didn't happen overnight, just because I was in the business for 20 years, you know, the first two or three buys, who's Crestpoint? Who's Crestpoint? So on that, I tell a funny little story. I My fourth or fifth employee, and so we have about 22 employees now. And I'm proud to say half are women. So, I mean, diversity is a, is a growing theme in our business mm-hmm. and it's an important theme. And it's unusual in real estate at, yes. at this point in uh, yeah. and 2019. So, it's certainly, I mean, when you go to ICSC, it's certainly not half women. I'm no. <laughs> or probably this conference. So, but I think it is growing. I think it's getting Absolutely. better. Absolutely. You do notice it being, yeah. uh, being at the forum, we should make that comment. I mean, coming to these forums seven or eight years ago, it was way less female presence than there is today. And I could just notice that without knowing the numbers, you can see and, it. And, you know, like the, the talent level, like hire the best person for the job. That's it. Isn't that, it's that simple, I mean, right? it's, it's not a complicated, it's not a complicated, you know, the strategy behind it. Just hire the best person for the job. And it's really encouraging to see all more and more female participation in our industry. Now, part of the problem was, you know, we talked about the 90s. Nobody got into the business between... 1991. I say nobody. I'm obviously exaggerating, but <laughs> you were last man through the door. Yeah, 91 and 98. Very few people got in the business. It's obviously much better now, but there's a real gap there, and so that was a, a gap. No matter what gender we're talking about, but yeah, but it's it is really encouraging to see more and more female participation. So back to this this quick story. So it might have been 2013. I heard maybe 12 or 13. It might have been. Uh, it was probably 2012. I heard who's now, who's in charge of our acquisitions. And he invited me to his wedding and his great wedding. And his bride comes up to me and goes, punches me. And we're outside at the wedding and says, what did you do that for? She goes, you know, you're so lucky. Devin came home and said, I'm leaving Cushman to go to Crestpoint. 
She said, Crestpoint? Who the hell is Crestpoint? You are not leaving a national firm to go to some company called Crestpoint. Not a chance. Right. So I mean she went startup is bound to Yeah, yeah. Like this thing is not going this is not going anywhere. So, you know, now fast forward four years later, I'm at the Cambridge Club working out. And this is last year. And some guy goes, What do you do? I introduced myself, Kevin Leon. What do you do? I'm at Crestpoint. Crestpoint. What a great company. Went on and on and talked about every employee there. He goes, what do you do then again? Are you like, uh, you in leasing or the IT guy. You're the, uh, yeah, the IT guy. But like, I wasn't offended. I was very happy, right? Yeah. Like, cause Crestpoint is now. It's like, exceeded Kevin Leon. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, that's, that was my goal, right? To make, yeah. and, and I should say, it wasn't just Kevin Leon. It was Kevin Leon and Colin McKellar. Of course. Yeah. And yeah, then, sorry. you know, but our team has done a fabulous job. So back to your question, I think we've got an atmosphere now in our group that it's very collegial. Family might be a slight exaggeration because we all, we talk like that, but the reality is we all spend too much time at work, right? So you really got to like the people you're working with. I think it's engaging. People get to do a lot of different things at our shop and have a lot of great friends at Oxford and Cadillac Fairview. And once you reach the top, obviously you get to do everything. But you know, when you go to those larger shops, you're kind of segregated into different jobs that you don't get the same exposure to. And so I think that's something that's really appealing to our team. We've got a young team. And, you know, they know and stress, we stress the importance of due diligence and, and risk measurement, which is something that we really stress. So, you know, I don't want to give the impression just because I say we're entrepreneurial and we're nimble, we do things off the cuff. We recognize opportunities quickly, but we really do that diligence. And so I think we've got a really good blend. And our, you know, our partner, Connor Clark and Lund Financial Group is you know, the investment committee that we have to go through and the, the rigorous reports we have to do to make sure we get everything approved. It's good discipline. So it's a combination of everything. And I think we, uh, we've created a really good culture from that perspective. And again, we get, you know, today I can tell you that tonight we are sponsoring one of the lead sponsors for Sick Kids Bubble Hockey Tournament. Oh, cool. So a bunch of us employees are going and Connor Clark and Lunn also participated. So... You know, so we like to spend time outside the office as well. Great. And you can show off your hockey skills from uh, your previous uh, career to few years. Well, I, you know, don't laugh. We had a mini tournament at, at our office in Toronto, CCL, and there was probably, I don't know, I'm going to say 32 teams. There might have been more. Colin and I won the tournament. Oh, wow. Uh, Bubble hockey they, it is. They let you win. They let you win. No, it wasn't It wasn't just the real estate group. It was the whole, it was all oh, Carter okay. Clark and Land okay. Financial okay. Group. So they were, they were trying to beat us. So the next the next line of questioning is, you know, okay, so you've created this great organization. You've got tons of capital that you need to deploy, of course. So, you know, and in this marketplace, it's not easy to find good, easy value-add deals. I mean, everything is sort of three and a half caps, four caps. You know, we, we talked about negative leverage off the air, but if you're financing at four and a half percent, it doesn't make sense to buy it at four or three and a half percent cap rates. So what are you doing now to find opportunities to deploy your capital? So the one thing I would, always suggest when people say we need to deploy. We would like to deploy. Sorry, fair enough. But you don't, you don't want to sit on it, I guess is the uh, point. And, There's and an urgency. Because our investors, to yeah. you know, they're very proud of the fact that we've been deploying capital, but they're much more proud <laughs> that our returns have been, you know, the top quartile, quite frankly, the top, we're, you know, and, and this I can only compare to the open fund index, but, and some of the consultants who provide us an index, but we are consistently the top performing open-ended fund in the last seven, eight years. So, I think they're happy that we're deploying capital pretty quickly. But I think if those returns were the opposite, they'd probably sure. say, 
Don't be. Well, and I guess you're deploying capital quickly because you've found a way to find the opportunities that maybe others aren't. I guess that's the question. Yeah, it is. I just, you know, yeah, no, if yeah, I no, didn't I correct you, you I would have yeah. gone back <laughs> and by the, one of the uh, CCL guys would have said, Can't you, say that. You can't say that. <laughs> Fair uh, enough. So, again, I think it's a, it's a combination of a few things. I think we, you know, I think the brokerage community knows that they can bring us various opportunities that maybe doesn't fit the box for some of the other groups out there. And because we have a little bit of flexibility on the parameters we buy at, and, you know, we're IRR focused, but again, we're not constrained by a going in yield or we're not constrained that, you know, we can only buy AAA class office towers downtown. So, and because I think we're a good partner. So, and I'll give you a little cross section of what we've bought in the last few years. You know, last year we bought, uh, we bought an office building in downtown Montreal, 630 Rennie Levesque with a great partner. They were existing and uh, another partner, 50% sale. And, you know, we bought it almost a 6% yield at a very reasonable price per square foot. And, and again, we think that we got a good price because the partner was as focused on who their partner was as who, what the pricing was. And so they appreciated what we brought to the table. You know, there's other assets where we've bought in three or four years ago, and I guess this is kind of exciting. You know, three or four years ago, we probably bought a few assets where we said, we're buying it on income generation. I'll give you an example. We bought a million and a half square feet of industrial in Brantford three years ago. And people said, Brantford, why are you going to Brantford? Well, Brantford's not the most exciting place in Southern Ontario, but if you look at it on a map, it's actually pretty strategic from an industrial perspective. We bought it from less a transportation of, standpoint, yeah, yeah. Bought it at $50 a foot at an 8% yield, and we bought 80 acres of extra land. And we paid zero allocation to that land. So we're now going through, we're just, you know, getting subdivision approval. And all of a sudden people want design build proposals. So guess what? That land's going to be worth something. So that's something that, you know, again, was a strategy. So I, but at the time, nobody wanted to buy in Brantford, right? So, yeah. so we're well, it's buying. Like, it's like 15 years ago, no one wanted to buy in Milton, yeah. right? Anyway, keep going. So we're buying, we're buying, so, you know, we can buy the core assets. We can buy the value add assets. And our strategy is called core plus. And, and I think at this point, the brokers know that for whatever reason, if there's an opportunity, there's a small window, we're getting that call and we're not the only ones getting that call. I'd like to think we're the only ones getting that call, but they tell you that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I think we're, we're, and so I think that's been a, a big key to our success. I think we, you know, we're fundamental believers in Toronto and Vancouver and you have to be because you have to really have strong conviction, especially to buy in Vancouver. We've just about to close on our second office building downtown. At what, get, what cap rate? At a four cap rate. Okay, yeah. And, you know, but again, we bought multi-tenant industrial in Vancouver three, four, five years ago. Everyone said, you know, we might be paying too much at 120, 130, 140 bucks a foot. And now they're worth, you know, closer to $300 a foot because rental growth has gone up quite a bit. So, and, and they weren't easy. Like one of them was 30% vacant. We had to spend a couple million dollars on it. But, you know, once we did that, we were able to turn that into really income growth. So, so our strategy is focused on probably the same major cities that others are, but I think the asset classes and the type of assets, we probably have a little more flexibility than others. Would you call it sort of pragmatism? Is that like you just, you'll, you'll, you'll do something, you'll look at things a little bit differently or try to anyway? I mean, everyone says that, but. I think so. And I, and I think we probably are pretty good at arbitraging the market. And what I mean by that is just identifying situations where they've been poorly managed or under market rents and able to take advantage of that with active management. Great. Well, thanks very much, Kevin, for coming on. That was a great conversation. 
Thanks to Informa for giving Adam and I and the Real Estate Podcast, Commercial Real Estate Podcast, the opportunity to record live here at the Real Capital Forum as part of our start of our real estate conference series. Thank you to our sponsor, First National. Uh, and of course, as always, if you want to find the podcast available on all podcatchers, and if you like it, please tell a friend. Thanks, gentlemen. That was great. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.